1938, a certain German mustache man decided to annex a strip of land from Czechoslovakia, called the Sudetenland, citing the reason as the fact there were many German speakers living in the area. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, and French President, Edward de Ladier, met with said man and Mussolini in München and practically gifted away the Sudetenland. Now fast forward to February 21st, 2022, President's Day. The Beijing Olympics have drawn to a close one day prior, and Putin has signed decrees stating that Donetsk and Lugansk, two Ukrainian breakaway states, are independent people's republics, and signed mutual treaties of friendship and aid with the two regions. Then Putin decided to move peacekeeping troops into these two regions, citing Ukrainian violation of the 2015 Minsk Agreement as to the reasoning. Oh, and there was a meeting in München that involved Ukraine and the West, which Russia did not attend. Three days later, Putin invaded Ukraine. At least he didn't violate the Olympics Peace Treaty. Anyone who hasn't been living under a rock has probably heard about the present war in Ukraine, but as to whether they know the historical context is another. This episode, The Road to War, will be the first part of a series dissecting the conflict in Ukraine, followed by the Chinese money story, Zelensky, Putin's greatest miscalculation, and possibly several other episodes. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Author Zbigniew Brzezinski once said, It cannot be stressed enough that without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be an empire, but with Ukraine suborned, then subordinated, Russia automatically becomes an empire. Now, in order to understand how this conflict between Ukraine and Russia blew up into an outright invasion, one must understand the effects of history. But in order to understand the effects of history, one must first understand perspective, specifically Putin, the aggressor's perspective. Note that the next part I'm about to state is solely from Putin's point of view, not my own opinion. From Putin's point of view, Ukraine has always been a vital part of Russia. Kiev was the center of the Kievan Rus, the birthplace of their nation. Ukraine was the agricultural center of the Soviet Union. Donbas was the industrial heartland and is full of many ethnic Russians who are being persecuted, therefore it should be a part of Russia. Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus have such a long and shared history and are culturally, ethnically, linguistically, historically, and politically tied together. Russia and Ukraine are one people. This is why Ukraine can never and should never join NATO. In fact, NATO troops should withdraw from former Soviet and Soviet bloc states like the Baltics, Poland, and Romania. The US and EU have ignored Russian security concerns over this and should stop messing around in Russia's backyard, because Russia is the only one who should be doing the messing around. Now that you understand the viewpoint of the aggressor, let's dive further into the history itself. <clears throat> Say for one period between 1918 and 20, when Ukraine was an independent state, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine had always been a part of some or several larger entities. Russia is the obvious answer, but that ignores Ukraine's time under Romania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Austro-Hungary, the Ottomans, and a decently long period under the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was 
the influence of these different entities that shaped Ukrainian culture into something distinct, as well as one of the most multicultural nations in Europe. Fast forward to Ukraine's years under the Soviet Union. For this period, we're going to focus on several specific years. First was the 1932 to 1933 Holodomor, meaning starvation extermination in English. In short, in 1929, Joseph Stalin started collectivizing agriculture and deporting rich and resistant peasants in Ukraine. Collectivization led to a drop in food production and disorganization of the rural economy. This led to peasant uprisings, sometimes armed, in provinces that had previously opposed the Red Army in the Civil War. So in 1932, Stalin decided to expand the famine and blacklisted Ukrainian farms, towns, and villages to prevent peasants from receiving food. Peasants were prevented from leaving Ukraine, and aid was not provided in large enough quantities. During the winter, police and party officials took everything edible from the peasants. All this starvation led to multiple instances of cannibalism, lawlessness, theft, and lynching. There were mass graves across the countryside, and bodies riddled even cities, which suffered lefts due to ration cards. All in all, between 1931 and 1934, 5 million people died across the USSR, with 3.9 million of them being Ukrainians. More than that, the previous policy of Ukrainization, the use of the Ukrainian language, halted, and Ukrainian culture and religious leaders were persecuted. The Ukrainian government was taken over by Bolsheviks, who began a campaign of Russification. People were jailed, sent to the Gulag, and executed for promoting Ukrainian as a distinct identity. As for the culture itself, it was portrayed as a folksy curiosity. Western journalists in Moscow were told not to write about Holodomor. Save for a short period during the Nazi occupation, Holodomor was kept silent. It was first publicly mentioned in 1986 after Chernobyl, which was also originally kept a secret. The next big event was the transfer of Crimea. First Secretary of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, though Russian by birth, loved Ukraine. It was his favorite Soviet republic. He grew up in Ukraine and as a teen worked in the mines of Yuzovka, Donetsk, and even married a Ukrainian woman. On February 27, 1954, Pravda, the official Soviet newspaper, released this statement. Decree of the Presidentium of the USSR Supreme Soviet transferring Crimea province from the Russian Republic to the Ukraine Republic, taking into account the integral character of the economy, the territorial proximity, and the close economic ties between Crimea province and the Ukraine Republic, and approving the joint presentation of the Presidentium of the Russian Republic Supreme Soviet and the Presidentium of the Ukraine Republic Supreme Soviet on the transfer of Crimea province from the the Russian Republic to the Ukraine Republic. Khrushchev gifted away Crimea, a region that had been a part of Russia since Catherine the Great's time, that was culturally closer to Russia and had three times as many Russians as Ukrainians. At this point, there were no tatters as Stalin deported them to Central Asia in 1944. As for economic similarities, Crimea mainly relied on tourism. The reason for the gift was to decentralize the system to prevent a second Holodomor and act as a 300-year anniversary gift of Ukraine's entry into the Russian Empire. Let's hope this strategically located Black Sea Peninsula won't cause any problems in the future. 
1991, the USSR collapsed, and Ukraine had a referendum on whether they wanted to stay or leave, with 90% of the 84% voter turnout choosing to leave. The boundaries of Ukraine, as under the USSR, became the set boundaries of the nation. But when the USSR dissolved, they left in Ukraine about 1,900 nukes, rendering Ukraine the world's third largest nuclear power. Yugoslavia had just had its massive breakup that's so bad it sounded like a Taylor Swift song. George H.W. Bush did not want the breakup of the USSR to lead to a conflict across nuclear states, which might increase nuke manufacturing. So in 1994, the US, UK, and Russia signed the Budapest Memorandum with Ukraine, which assured that in exchange for denuclearization, they would respect the independence, sovereignty, and boundaries of Ukraine. Along with Russian promises to compensate the value of the nukes and American cost coverage of the program. Originally, after the fall of the USSR, Ukraine was closer to Russia than the West. The 2004 election was between Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russia candidate who was nominated as the successor of the previous president and endorsed by Putin, and the pro-Western Viktor Yushchenko, who survived an assassination by poison. The first round of elections was inconclusive. In the November runoff, Yanukovych was declared the winner, although the exit polls showed that Yushchenko was in the lead. This led to tens of thousands of Yushchenko supporters protesting on the streets in what was known as the Orange Revolution, pushing the Ukrainian Supreme Court to overturn the results and host another runoff. On December twenty-six, two thousand four, which Yushchenko won. Yushchenko's presidency was marred with troubles, starting with a fuel crisis in two thousand five and the replacement of his cabinet in September. In two thousand six, his party placed third, and he was made to approve the nomination of Yanukovych for prime minister, which would lead to a power struggle resulting with the Rada passing laws curtailing Yushchenko's authority in early two thousand seven. This included one that ruled it impossible for a president to reject the Rada's choice in prime minister. In September 2007, the third general election in three years was held, with Yushchenko's party still ranking third, after Yanukovych's Party of the Regions and Yula Tymoshenko, a leader of the Orange Revolution's bloc, the woman with Princess Leia braids. The two orange parties formed an alliance, and Tymoshenko. Became prime minister in two thousand seven. Even so, there was dissident between the orange parties and the conflicting goals of relations with Russia and wanting to join the EU. In the next election in January two thousand ten, Yushchenko only received five percent of the vote, with Yanukovych receiving forty eight point ninety five percent and Tymoshenko receiving forty five point forty seven percent. Although international observers described the vote as fair, Tymoshenko disagreed, and her bloc refused to attend the inauguration. In April, Yanukovych struck a deal with Russian President Dmitry Medvedev to extend the lease of Sevastopol, a Crimean base for the Russian Black Sea Fleet, until 2042, in exchange for a price reduction on Russian natural gas. This deal was so controversial that. The opposition in the Rada threw eggs and smoke bombs, but it was narrowly passed. Yanukovych also reversed Yushchenko's decree on Holodomor, being a genocide, 
further straining relations with the opposition. The Constitutional Court further expanded Yanukovych's powers and in 2011 imprisoned Tymoshenko for seven years under charges of abuse of power. In 2012, Yuri Lutsenko, Tymoshenko's interior minister, was also sentenced to four years of prison. In October, the Party of Regions won the largest share of seats in the parliamentary election, which most observers agree was fair. In April 2013, Lutsenko was released from prison, and Yanukovych agreed to sign an association agreement with the EU. But on November 21st, Yanukovych suspended the deal leading to a scramble among EU leaders and hours later protests in Kiev's independent square. Euromaidan. For three months, people, sometimes numbering into the hundred thousands, took to the streets protesting. Over time, they moved into anti-authoritarianism protests. While these protests were mainly peaceful, things took a turn in mid-February 2014. On February 19 through 20, when special police units gunned around 100 or so people and injured more. That was the last straw for the international community. European diplomats brokered an agreement between Yanukovych and the opposition, which he signed before leaving for Russia, never to be seen again on Ukrainian soil. The Rada appointed a new acting prime minister and president, who was set on domestic reform and integration with Europe, who signed the association agreement with the EU. In response to the upheaval, Putin ordered an invasion of Crimea. As pro-Russian protesters became increasingly assertive in Crimea, professional soldiers whose uniforms lacked clear identifying marks surrounded airports in Simferpol and Sevastopol. The Ukrainians called them little green men. Masked gunmen also occupied the Crimean parliament and raised a Russian flag. Pro-Russian lawmakers dismissed the sitting government. At first, Putin denied there was an invasion, but later he would go back on his word when he began awarding commendations to commanders. According to Putin, the reason behind this move was that the large population of Russians in Crimea, numbering 60%, was in danger. In truth, it was because of Putin's failing economic situation. He needed a win for the elections. Ukraine wanted Russia to shoot first, and also understood that most Ukrainian troops in Crimea were made of Crimeans, so they weren't as reliable. The West also advised them to do nothing. By early March, Putin seized Crimea, a move so quick and bloodless it was quite popular with the Russian public. However, in the eyes of the world, Russia violated the UN Charter, 1975 Helsinki Final Act, the 1994 Budapest Memorandum of Security Assurances for Ukraine, and the 1997 Treaty on Friendship, Cooperation, and Partnership between Ukraine and Russia. Then there was the referendum on whether or not Crimea should join Russia. For starters, there were only two options, join Russia or revert to the 1992 Crimean constitutional autonomy. Along with that, there weren't any credible international observers for the votes, which had a sussy turnout of 83%, with 96.7% voting to join Russia, which seems fairly impossible, because although 60% of the population was Russian, the other 40% were Ukrainian and Crimean Tatar, which returned in the 1980s. 
Two months later, a leaked report from the Russian president's Human Rights Council said that the voter turnout was actually 30%, with only around half of that wanting to join Russia. The annexation of Crimea is still a controversial event, and to this day, a lot of governments do not recognize it. In April, the war in Donbas began. Now, Donbas, after Crimea, had the greatest density of Russians. Brief history. Russian migrants, mainly convicts, immigrated to Donbas in the 1930s and 1800s in order to work in the coal mines, as Ukrainian peasants preferred to farm. During the Soviet era, eastern Ukraine was an industrial hub that produced armaments, ships, aircraft, missiles, machinery, and chemicals. Russian was more commonly spoken in cities, while Ukrainian was more commonly spoken in the rural areas. So naturally, the east was closer to Russia. Easterners also did not take too kindly with cultural shifts, like Euromaidan. Another example is the change with language. Before 1991, speaking Russian was very important. Ukrainian was considered the language of peasants, of the uneducated, while Russian was considered the language of the urban elite. Even after 1991, which saw the national language change from Russian to Ukrainian, Russian was still widely spoken. Ukraine attempted to change things about this, and Easterners felt like they were being disenfranchised. Russian armed, supported, and led separatists began fighting with the Ukrainian military, taking towns like Slovyesk and Donetsk, interestingly Viktor Yanukovych's birthplace. The Ukrainians didn't do much because Russian troops had massed along the Ukrainian border because they thought Putin would blame Ukraine for any deaths and invade to protect the Russian-speaking citizens of eastern Ukraine. Sound familiar? In early July, Ukraine had enough and the government wanted to push out the rebels once and for all. In retaliation, Russia armed the rebels with high-tech service-to-air missiles. On July 17th, Malaysia Flight 17 was infamously shot down by rebels, resulting in the death of 298 passengers, getting the world's attention. Ukraine pushed back harder, nearly overrunning the rebels until mid-August when Russia actively invaded. Though confronted with mountains of evidence, including satellite images and the slip-up of a rebel leader, Russia denied doing so. Sound familiar? In September, in Minsk, Belarus, Russia, Ukraine, the Organization for Security and Cooperation, OSCE, and the rebels signed the first Minsk Accord, agreeing to a 12-point ceasefire deal that included prisoner exchanges, deliveries of humanitarian aid, and withdrawal of heavy weapons. At this point, about 2,600 had died. This agreement was quickly violated by both sides, so in February 2015, the second Minsk Accord, brokered by France and Germany, was signed. It was useless since it never really was implemented, partially because of Russia's insistence that it was not involved in the conflict, which went at odds with point 10, which calls for the withdrawal of all foreign armed formations, military equipment, and mercenaries. Ultimately, the war in Donbas never truly ended and would claim around 14,000 lives. Reversing a bit, 
On May 25, 2014, billionaire Petro Poroshenko beat Yulia Tymoshenko in a landslide during elections, replacing the acting president. During this period, Ukraine grew closer to the West and began focusing more on its own culture. Ukrainian became the required language in secondary schools due to the 2017 education law. Ukrainian media and businesses began using Ukrainian more frequently. The foreign ministry also began a campaign to change the Russian spelling of Ukrainian names to the Ukrainian form, which has seen changes in foreign media and airports. For example, Kiev, which used to be spelled K-I-E-V, is now spelled K-Y-I-V. In 2017, the EU allowed Ukraine to travel visa-free and low-cost airlines expanded flights to European cities, which have allowed for hundreds of thousands to study and work in Poland and the EU. In consequence of the riots among local priests against the Russian Orthodox Church due to their view on the Donbas conflict, in 2019, after a long campaign for Kiev to have its own church, the leader of global orthodoxy in Istanbul, Ecumenical Patriarch Bartolomeu, granted it against the protests of Putin. With that, this episode draws to a close. I hope I was able to provide a more in-depth understanding on the history building up to the invasion of Ukraine. I know I left out some of the more recent developments, but I assure you that will be covered in a future episode, most likely the one on Zelensky. Yeah, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your evening, and yeah, do yourselves a solid and keep up with the Ukrainian crisis, and let's all hope it gets better. Thank you, and bye. Update. I was able to speak with a Ukrainian substitute teacher who grew up post-USSR collapse. She explained to me that she grew up speaking Russian because her family did not know how to speak Ukrainian. It was only when she entered school she began learning Ukrainian because the curriculum was taught in Ukrainian. So she spoke Ukrainian at school and Russian at home and is more fluent in Russian. She spent her time growing up in a Soviet-style apartment complex in a town outside of Kiev. Her mom wanted to be an artist, but because artists had to paint communist propaganda, she decided to enter the medical field instead. Her father taught, I mean, fought in Afghanistan and was shot in the knee, but did not want to be sent back to the USSR, so they put him in a special operations force. Because her dad was a member of special ops, and he had secret information, and would possibly be outed as the former government was overturned, he decided to move his family to America in secret. So while he officially got his wife and kids visas, he forged documents that stated that he was currently working his office. Once in the U.S., he officially applied for a visa and political asylum. So when she was my, when she was nine, her family moved to Santa Monica with the help of a great aunt they did not know existed until after the fall of the USSR. This great aunt was sent to a concentration camp, but managed to escape with the help of some Nazi that may have had a crush on her or something and left for Britain, where she got married, had two kids, divorced, and moved to America. She had always wanted to go back to the USSR, but had to remain in the US for fear of being labeled as a spy due to the Cold War. Hey,